0: Hello, welcome back to another episode of Call Time. My name is always is Brian M. Davis. Uh, joining me t- today is uh, a, a past guest of mine, Daniel Faredes. Uh Previously, we talked about Halloween, but this ain't about Halloween. This is more along, along the lines of his more recent work. Uh, two movies that he recently just premiered just recently over the past year, Ted Bundy, American Boogeyman, and Ali... Aline Wurs,
1: uh, I hope
0: you uh, yeah. Wornos. Wornos. There we go. It's a little hard for me to pronounce certain names. Aline Warnos, Amer- American Boogie Woman. Like two companion movies that were essentially back to back, but and even film back to back in the terms of that. So, Daniel, I hope you have a good, uh, you've been having a good uh, New Year.
1: So far, so good. You know, a couple of, a couple of, uh you know snags here and there but we're <laughs> we're working it out so i'm glad to be here thanks for having me
0: of course i know last time that we were that you were on the podcast uh we were going to talk about your recent two movies that you made during uh mm-hmm. the but we kind of like ran out of time because yeah, we, sure we, sure yeah we covered
1: yeah. a lot of ground
0: yeah so yeah let's go right into it so how mm-hmm. did the background for these two movies actually come about mm-hmm
1: um let's see it's you know you're taking me back a little it's funny you know even though there are newer movies it feels like I made them a while ago I I think just so much has happened in the world and in everybody's lives just seems like these movies were longer than uh than they actually were Uh, um but the origin of them was that I was approached by a producer that I'd worked with on on some of my other projects it's Jared and he was working with a company that is um, making distributing films. And they had an idea that they would like to do something on the Ted Bundy story. And my my initial, and Ted Bundy being the kind of infamous you know, American serial killer, my initial reaction to this, to be honest, was good grief. You know, there's been so many movies and documentaries and yeah. things on Ted Bundy. And I just like, I don't know what else we could possibly say about this creep. Um, you know, and I and I just didn't love the idea of, of doing something else on this character. But I, when I did go away and I thought about it, I rewatched watched some of the movies and documentaries that had been done in the past few years. But I have to say, like, the thing that sort of bothered me, and this is no disrespect to anybody else's film or anybody's interpretation of that story, uh, that true story, is that, you know, uh, Bundy was not a, a nice guy. He wasn't a... a uh, you know, a folk legend or a hero of some kind. He was a monster. And I thought, well, you know, and I'm not saying anybody portrayed him to be out to be, you know, the, a superhero or something, but I feel like, no, you no. know, there was a version where Zach Efron played him and he was the smiling, almost kind of misunderstood guy. And I'm like, wow, that's just not, I grew up in the seventies when he was on a loose as a little kid. And I just remember how scary the whole thing was. And, and so I thought if I approach this story, I want to do something that's really disturbing. Because I think that the whole thing is disturbing. The whole thing is frightening and
0: terrifying.
1: Yeah, and I'm going to uh, remember those kinds of people. I want to remember them for who they really were, and that was the beginning of it all.
0: Yeah, I actually just watched American Boogeyman last night since it's on uh, Hulu right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I was watching it, and I was like, it is really, really like, really disturbing because they were just like, a, like, a few scenes that you know. And props to Chad Murray Michael for got yeah, Chad Michael Murray right. Chad yeah. Michael Murray. There we go. Props mm-hmm, Ch- yeah. Props from him to like really creep me out because I'm like, when I do think of Ted Bundy, is like there is like this fascination of like heroizing like serial killers or killers in general stuff like that because they are like fans yeah. of this stuff. And to give credit to uh, to him, I was like it was like he, he understood that, that Ted, this Ted Bundy is not the one that you always think about, the smiling serial killer. And you even end with uh, the quote of him saying, He's the most cold hearted son of a bitch you ever met. And I'm just like, yeah. That is like, yeah, it's like, and there's a lot of these uh, serial killer movies uh, that do make a notion of. I wouldn't say like yeah, like you're like making them out to be a little more heroic in terms of their murders, but just mm-hmm. making them more presentable in the in the way of yeah, well, making I think some more... of
1: them, um, yeah. I think I think if I may, just yeah, I feel like a lot of these films just almost gloss over the horror that they caused in the lives of the victims, the victims' families, the people who survived this madness that had no motive and no reason. You know, these girls that Bundy was targeting and murdering were doing nothing but like walking to class. Yeah. And he would approach them in this very like bizarre, you know, manipulative way. And that's, that's what he was. I mean, he was just a, he was just a manipulator. Um, and, you know, he would pretend to be uh, handicapped and, and put a, a cast on or, put a, or have a pair of crutches. You know, anything to kind of like elicit sympathy, um, and you know, he preyed on the good nature of these nice girls. They were just doing whatever anybody else is doing: going to class, spending a day at the beach, going to, you know, uh, going to shopping. It's it it just defies any explanation of why he kidnapped and tortured and murdered these girls the way he did. Yeah, so vicious and so cool. Um, you know, my movie doesn't dwell so much on the on the, you know, you you see very little, but I think you don't need to see all of it to know just how awful it is. And, um, you know, and some people, you know, I, I think that's the thing is like, anytime you touch on something like this, you know, whether it's the Sharon Tate story or this, you know, Ted Bundy, people just get really uncomfortable and they get really angry about it. And I think part of that is it's the defense mechanism of not wanting to face truth. Yeah. And I think history bothers a lot of people, especially today. I don't think people want to really look at history for what it was. I think they would rather see it for what they would like it to be or to have been. Yeah. Um, I will talk about, you know, I can get political and talk about January sixth, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> of course. But we all know what that was. Yeah. Um, and to try to rewrite it and to try to sugarcoat it or put some other veneer on it, that kind of shit bothers the hell out of me. And I think that's a little bit of the reaction that I had um, when I approached these movies of like, no, we're not going to sugarcoat the reality. We're not going to make this into some kind of um, you know misunderstood, you know, kind of womanizing Lothario It's some guy that like women were falling all over. They weren't. You know, he he was just an average guy with an average IQ. Like, um, dropped out. Out of law school, dropped out of you know anything he did, he wasn't very successful at you know. So I think there's this whole legend that Ted Bundy was intelligent, and you know, he was intelligent in the way he knew how to you know um, make make people do things, manipulate. Like, he, was, he was a sociopath and a liar, uh, a really really dangerous person. Got exactly it, in my opinion. So you
0: know, and it doesn't bring,
1: but I do think it's important that we
0: remember history. Yeah, sorry, my, your uh, connection was coming a, a little uh, coming in and out, but I think oh, okay, we, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can I can still okay, hear you. Uh, okay, else, it, it might be my connection because um. Okay, so yeah, yeah, if you ever need me to you know pause because it's not coming through, just let me know. Yeah, uh, so yeah, uh, and I think that's the thing. What I saw with your Ted Bundy movie is that there was this nasty monster underneath, and it sort of reckon. My, it sort of reminded me of Cary Elroy's Ted Bundy from The River Man, where, mm-hmm, yeah. where you saw this like normal, pristine average man, and then the moment he started talking about his murders, it's just like he, you could just sense there was this monster underneath, and I think that's the same, mm-hmm. that's how Chad was able to really convey, uh, like, really convey into like, oh, this is the Ted Bundy that history kind of like glosses over of this I wouldn't say like mm-hmm. like a, a total psychopath of mm-hmm. and yeah. he was
1: and I feel like there is sort of a legend to Ted Bundy you know I mean certainly our movie takes some creative license with the story um, like certain things that didn't really play out the way they, they happened in the film but I would say like most of the facts are there I mean if anybody wanted to ch- fact check me on the dates if anybody wanted to fact check me on locations or things like that Um, you know obviously making these movies for a limited budget you know we couldn't recreate you know the look of every single building which these things happen but I think the you know if you're along for the the ride if you will on a movie like this I think if you look at the history of it all the timeline matches what actually did happen Uh, yeah you know Um, there wasn't in reality you know a McChesney who was really involved in the case she, she unfortunately was not the you know, the big uh, hero at the end that came in to, you know, take Ted out. Um, but, I you know, in terms of telling it for the audience, I was like, I think the audience needs this moment of confrontation and release. And I feel like because we we told the story through the eyes of law enforcement, in fact, this very real um, Seattle detective named Kathleen Chesney, played in our film by the wonderful Colin Rodin, um, that... I wanted the audience to have that kind of cathartic moment. Yeah. And I, and I, what I argue is like, you know, there are movies and there are documentaries. We're making a documentary, we're making a movie based on fact and it's fiction based on that. But I wanted the essence of Ted Bundy. And like you said, the evil of this man, to really come through, you know, I wasn't trying to exploit him, certainly not his victims. Um, if anything, the movie advocates for the news. I mean, I think it mentions you mentioned the real names. you see the real yeah. photos, um, yeah. the slideshow in a scene in the film. you know McChesney sort of speaks for them, and I've her strength to carry the movie.
0: because yeah, um, yeah, she's yeah. the
1: opposite. She's good. she's she's fighting for them. And yeah. it felt like if people don't want to see that, and there are those people who don't want to see anything because they've already made their mind up, Um, But if they want to see something negative in that,
0: then then so be it. Yeah, there's a great scene in the movie where uh, Machenzi is mad that her off, well, yeah, his her department is Mm -hmm. shutting down the case, and she essentially snaps at her commanding her captain and another uh, another officer because of essentially. Ted Bundy essentially like moving out of Seattle, and they don't have like the the type of thing. And she starts listening up to the names of people who have died, and you could just sense uh-huh. that there was like there's this like venomous like anger, just like r- like rage, yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah, and I and I think
1: that all the things that you see in the movie where the where she talks about, uh, um, you know, they, they don't even have a computer. And that's, oh, yeah. that was the case. The only computer in the entire police department or the Seattle uh, Sheriff's Department at that time was in the payroll department. There was no way of creating databases and comparing photos or, or uh, license plate numbers. Any, all of that work was done by hand. And so I think the lack of technology, I think we try to talk about that in the film a little bit, is kind of what impeded the, the investigation. I think it slowed things down drastically. Also remember in those days departments and and, um, various, uh, you know, heads of of departments didn't speak to each other the way they do. Now, there was no linking one state, one town, one county to another, but just that kind of detective work didn't exist yet. So I think all of these things I tried to show in the movie, what the things that made it so much more difficult to catch him.
0: Now, in terms of its companion movie, I say companion movie because they're essentially about two very well-known serial killer, or well, yeah, serial sure. killers, or yep. or killers in general, with uh-huh. American Boogie Woman, what, like, how did you get to that? Like, okay, I just did a movie about Ted Bundy. Uh-huh. Uh, do I want to do another movie, or uh-huh. or did it just like fall into your where it lap is like I have another project for you. It's another. It's about Allen Works. So yeah, how did that project come about? No yeah, thing. it was, it, it's kind
1: of what you just, it's kind of what you just said. It was uh, we on the heels of wrapping and completing Ted Bundy, uh, American Ted Bundy, you know, during the lockdown part of the pandemic, that, that was in the summer of 2020 when things were really scary and really unknown. So we were one of the very first independent films, if not the first, to be greenlit by Screen Actors Guild to even go into production. So we were really, really and we were kind of almost inventing, or I would say, we're not so much inventing, but we were testing out these guidelines for working safely. Yeah. Uh, because obviously the actors can't have masks on when rolling, but in between takes, they certainly do. And, you know, there were a lot less of the um, traditional, you know, filmmaking, I guess, things that, you know, you rely and for instance there was no makeup person on set they had to the do their own makeup between yeah. because you couldn't have that many bodies physically on a set everybody was working in little circles you know bubbles and you couldn't cross in between those zones and so we were working in this new way and when we were successful at doing it um, the people behind the Ted Bundy movie said well let's let's you know we, you guys were really successful you did a really great job let's do something else and um, they had this notion of the Eileen Warno story, which obviously had been told so compellingly yeah. and beautifully in Monster, which Charlize Theron won the Oscar for. So I again, my reaction was like, Why? You know, that was already done so well. Yeah. Nobody can hold a candle to that performance. Um, and what other story is there to tell? So um producer, Lucas, and I went into kind of research a little bit more and and he came back with this idea of, there was this little piece of Eileen's life that very, very few people, uh, I had never heard, was that when she was a very young woman in her early, early 20s, had made her way to a small town in Florida, and and she met and married this wealthy uh, retired elderly man named Louis Bell this grass fell. And the, the marriage had lasted only several weeks, that there were all kinds of problems, physical abuse, things like that. Um, she meted out on him, and she beat the spoiled man with his own pain. Um, she had stolen money and you know, was involved in par- bar fights and brawls. And you know, the seeds of Eileen's anger, her rage, were planted at a very, very young age when she was abused by uh, her, her old grandfather, at least. Um, and was selling her body at 12, 13. I mean, just horrible, horrible life. And so the idea of this movie was: what could that marriage have been? What was that chapter of her life all about? And the movie kind of jumps off into that, the older Eileen in prison, kind of telling the story, but as the older and much more you know, emotionally, mentally unstable Eileen would have yeah. done, but she kind of is telling it in a way to make it more interesting, make it more sexy, if you will. Um, and so the story is kind of pulled from this unreliable narrator and going yeah, into we, her past, and looking at this very short period of her life when she married this with, with her man, played by the amazing- Tobin uh, Bell. Tobin Bell from the Saw films, and we're just so grateful that Tobin agreed with it. Um, but yeah, that was the impetus
0: yeah, I was actually going to ask about the, the casting for, uh, for both American Boogeyman and Woman because they it is still a casting to say at least But uh, again, uh, props to Chad uh, Michael Murray for playing an amazing Ted Bundy because... Oh, I, yeah, thank you. And I know that would mean a lot to
1: him. You know, yeah, just,
0: and... He you know, hard on it and
1: wanted to play it in a way that was not your kind of typical, um, you know sexy guy kind
0: of yeah and you know it's funny because i remember when the movie was first announced to be released for like a one night only type of screening or or a limited release i was reading on twitter and people like why is highwood still sexifying Ted Bundy?" and i was like and i'm looking at a picture of both ted bundy and and uh uh, chad's version of tim bernie i'm like yeah, I, I can still see it, but it's like he still looks like a, a man in the '70s. Where it's like in the '70s, yeah. people really did look like that. So it's like it's they not did, really- yeah. I, I mean, I think there
1: were some funny <laughs> comments I had read. You know, because people just want to hate on everything. I, I just ignore the internet. I think i told you before. I just I I don't read a thing anymore. It's just it's a viper pit of nasty. Oh yeah, it is. So I just don't even I don't even bother. Um, it's it's just useless to try to win any of these people over. It's unhappy, miserable. You know, but, people who yeah. just want to sit behind their computer and be mad. So I'm like, great, you go be mad and we'll go make Um, So but that be being man. said, but yeah, I know. I mean, some people were, there were some complaints or or criticisms that, that Chad was wearing this terrible wig. Well, surprise, that was his real hair. We didn't well, have yes. money and time for putting a wig on this man. So, so what you saw was Chad Michael Murray's hair made into like a 70s male hairdo. You know with with curling irons and pressing irons, and, you know, things to make his hair look wavier. Uh, but that is actually his. Uh,
0: and to bring up the next point with uh, Aline, uh how did casting a Peyton List come about? Because I know at the uh-huh. time of probably filming, she may or may not have been filming Cobra, you know, Cobra Culver, Kai uh, season four. So I'm not sure if that was like sandwiched in like a little gap between of her break in filming of the show or right before it you know went back into yeah
1: that's exactly what it was she had a a very short break um between her cobra kai seasons and (laughs) god love her uh i just watched the most recent Season four, she she kind of steals the show in a lot of ways.
0: Um, yeah, I'm literally. in the middle of season four as of right now. So
1: are you? Are you still? I don't want to give anything away, but it's kind of in a way, it's kind of you know maybe it's a little bit her season. I'll say that, but um, but she's she's just wonderful, and we had a great time working together, and we were lucky to get her because she just happened to have this little weeks um before she had to go back to Atlanta to start shooting season four of Cobra Kai. So it was just really it was great to um just have somebody that young and excited and aimed for She brought a lot of great energy to our project. Um she was always fun to be with, lots of jokes. <laughs> and you know, it's a kind of a heavy subject matter, but this one was a little different from the Ted Bundy thing where we were really kind of going into this dark, dark place, some of that. And whereas the Eileen Wuornos movie was more of like a, you know, it's it's kind of like a, a you know, a, a, a telling of a tall tale and it's getting bigger yeah. and bigger as the older Eileen is telling it. So it's none of it's supposed to be taken literally. Um, yeah. But, you know, because it had a slightly, it was, you know, the tone is dark, but it's not dark in the way of a Ted Bundy. Um, but because yeah. of that, we, I think we just had a little more fun on that set. And I think we were more relaxed. Um, the yeah, pressure was actually- on. We had, we mo- yeah, both of these movies were made in twelve days. That was twelve days for the budget.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So
1: I actually So it's 12 days each. That that's how much time we had. Twelve days to shoot each one. Wow. Uh, yeah. so, tell yeah. me about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tell me. I know. Uh, it was a lot of planning, a lot of planning.
0: Uh, back to the casting, though. Uh, how did the casting of Holland Rosen come about for mm-hmm. to play essentially the main, the, the main, the, the heroic antagonist uh, against yeah. Bundy? Yeah. Yep.
1: Well, I wanted, you know, that I wrote the role for somebody who was a little bit small in stature, you know, no, not a big, strong, powerful woman. I wanted somebody you know, who would look in contrast to Bundy. who,, you know, wasn't the biggest guy, but I wanted her to look vulnerable. She worked in a, in a male-dominated dominated profession at the time. Not too many women were doing the job that real McChesney was doing. So because it was based on a real woman, it, I mean, it was important for me to find a young actor actress who could bring a strength to it, but still seem very vulnerable. And like it's me against all this stuff. And, and Holland came in and she was recommended, um, and I can't remember who, I think it may have been her agent or somebody involved maybe with our show, don't remember how that happened, but I just remember I met her and it was all kind of like this over Zoom, and yeah. um, we spoke and she was working out of town at, the, at that point. But I just, I saw something in her, I liked her kind of gravelly, kind of demi Moore kind of voice, you know, she seemed a little tough to me. But also very sweet, you know. She has yeah. a very you know, girl next door kind of vibe to her, and she also did some great work in, in um, Team Wolf. Oh yeah, um, and I just, you know, I knew she had a, a bit of a fan following, and it just made sense. And she really, you know, the thing is, she grasped on what this character was, um, and it was funny. She had told me a story that there was another um, true story that she was supposed to have been involved in. She was supposed to play the lead in, um, and it didn't happen. And then this
0: came to her, and she's like, "Oh wow, maybe I was meant to do this," and it all worked out. Now you mentioned it, but the the twelve day each production for mm-hmm. um, the thing, and you could tell that with it, especially with Ted Bundy, you could tell you were trying to figure out ways to not only film in a way that feels, you know, not twenty twenty ish, but at least 2020. Yeah. yeah, like because there are like recent films that that were filmed before or after the 2020 bubble that have mm-hmm. essentially you know mm-hmm. actors separated maybe a few feet apart you know sure. not closer so as a director especially with the, the the time frame you had for both films like what was the production like how yeah how Close where you essentially have your production, where it's like, okay, this is the pre production phase. What you know, I'm on set. I mean, uh-huh. I mean, not on uh, pre production phase, I'm on the production phase, I'm on set. You know, how do I condition actors? You know, not closely and everything because, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think, like I was saying earlier, we were kind of guinea pigs, you know, for this new way of working. And like you said, you know, there are lots of scenes, and, and, and you'll see it in current TV shows. The actors are not close orders with each other. You see there's really a distance um, a lot of times between them. You know, now I think people have gotten better over the past, you know, couple years at kind of tricking the audience more to make it seem like, oh, he's right on the other side of the table. So I think a lot of it was honestly just shooting in creative ways. You know, sometimes it was having reactions that were being shot separately from a master shot, for instance. Um, But we tried to really limit... um, you know, the contact between actors and crew, especially it was when the actors had their masks down, we felt like that was the most vulnerable. So we just made sure the set was clear. The only people on set were the ones who needed to care. We didn't have a script supervisor, which was, you know, dangerous because, you know, you don't have somebody keeping the continuity. Um, didn't have a lot of the typical traditional people on set that you normally see. You know, usually, there's a makeup artist right off camera waiting to jump in, you know, in between takes, and they'll dab. If you look at the Ted Bundy movie, and specifically, there's a scene early, and she's, she goes into the, the bullpen where all the investigators the police are, and they're investigating the Bundy. It's like a task force room. And you can just see the sweat all over the actors' faces. It's like a 98 degree day in California when we shot it. And there was nobody there to make them look perfect. You know, so yeah. it, you just see some of the flaws. I mean, if you look closely, you can see it. like there's sweat on their upper lip and, <laughs> and the actors are very conscious and self-conscious about it. But we let everybody know going in like this is not going to be the way it usually is. It just can't. So, yeah, it was it was that kind of preparation of, of
0: trying to
1: minimize contact between um, the crew and the cast
0: yeah and uh going forward with what you n- learned and what you did on American Boogeyman mm-hmm. how did the next film American Bogeywo- uh, Boogie Woman, do Whereas, like it was it the same exact methods or or did um, you have because because uh, because uh I know that like after 20 like around September 2020 like that's when right. there was like a new uh a new I would yeah like that's when like uh Howard had like a new version of sure like how to film in a COVID bubble type of thing mm-hmm. well that so, was
1: already discussed and, and kind of created on paper we were one of the very first ones to test it out oh, like I wow. said so um that's yeah so it was it was a weird time, that's all I can say. But by, so we, so we shot uh, the Boogeyman, Boogeyman, let's say July of 2020. And then by, by December, we were already shooting women. So all of that work and all the planning and including all the writing of the scripts all happened in that time. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't have a lot of, you know, a lot of people were kind of like hunkering down in our homes. I was working night and day trying to get these things off the ground. You know, so um, it just wasn't a lot of time. But yeah, by, yeah. by December when we shot, and like I said, we only had people for a very short window. And we're just glad to get her for those, you know, I think 10 days that we had her. Um, yeah. uh... But that being said, um, you know, it was, I, I think we just took what we learned that we were successful in doing from the first one. We brought it to the second one. We actually brought even some of the same crew back from, the, from Bundy onto the Eileen project. So oh. Just we we all had a kind of working
0: relationship in a in a, in a, way, a flow
1: in which to keep everybody safe. So that's what we did. We just repeated the same formula. Uh,
0: yeah, because there um, there are uh, moments where in both films there are people that are you know either kissing or having uh, simulated sex or something like that. When. Yeah. When you had to do it, especially with, the, especially since a lot of times now, especially with theater, I I have had, I had conversations with my fellow actors and actresses who are still like worried about doing intimate theater. back you know, you know, yeah. theater. So when you had to say, okay, uh, non-spoilers, but you know, there's a scene in Ted Bundy where he imagines himself uh, having a uh, a pleasure zone, and he, <laughs> you know, he, putting it? yeah, he has a pleasant zone, and he has like all these like masked, masked women with like bondage gear and stuff like that, too. Right, and right. There's a scene in Boogie Woman where, you know, uh, Jennifer's character, you know, like the character Jennifer walks in and sees her father having, you know, sex with Aline. So when it had yeah. to come up with those two, like, and of course, with uh, Aline being someone who was working as a prostitute or, you know, Ted Bundy, who killed, you know, women, like very mm-hmm. intimate. Yeah, and in a very close, how,
1: intimate way, right,
0: right, yeah. Right. How did those, I, I what yeah, how did those, like, intimate moments on film come about, especially with, uh yeah, especially with the protocol of, sure. yeah.
1: I will, t- I will tell you what it was, and, and it's a very simple answer. It's testing. It was testing, testing, testing. Hmm. testing. We had, we had our own, you know, and for a very small budget movie, it took a big dent. We took a big dent in our budget, which is why the movie had to be done in 12 days, as opposed to, say, 15 or 18. You know, it was it was the added cost of testing the entire casting crew on a almost almost daily basis. Uh, and, you know, when you take a, a, a test for one person being about $150 times 40, 50 people, every day or every two days that that money adds up real fast oh yeah so but we had a you know we had covid supervisors we had a nurse we had people specifically hired on set to make sure that everybody was social distanced that people had their masks on that people weren't you know having conversations off camera that were close to one another um, just to really, again, it was all for safety, safety, safety. That was our number one concern. You know, you have to remember these. You know, the crew, like my first AD, uh, uh, Paul, great, great guy. Um, you know, he's got two little kids at home. He didn't want to go home and you know bring his bring COVID into his family. Yeah, nobody did. So we were just all when we worked, we worked, and we weren't going out at night after. We weren't like you know we just everybody agreed we're gonna get this movie done and we're gonna keep each other safe. We're not gonna interact with the outside world unless we absolutely have to. Um, and that's how we made it work.
0: Uh, now, you mentioned, you, you kind of mentioned before and that uh, Aline, yeah, uh, American Boogie Woman, has what? sort of like a very t- uh tall tale type of story going forward. Sure. As I was watching it, I was like, yeah, this is kind of campy, but in the good entertaining world. Right, right. <laughs> it definitely and goes a little bit into like campiness. Yes. Like like almost soap properly, but uh, uh, yes. Like yeah. uh, but as I was watching it, there was like elements of psycho and elements of camp yeah. fear. <laughs> sure. Uh, yep. Was that yep. in, was that intentional of you writing the story as like, oh you know, uh because For
1: No, it was because we don't know anything about that time. It's not like Wendy, where we can, you know, intimate, even though we weren't, you know, we don't know exactly the details of everything that happened when he murdered four innocent girls. Um, This part of Eileen's life, I mean, if you look on any retrospective, any documentary, any book that's been written about her, there are no details about this point of her her life. So we kind of had to make up everything. I thought, well, if we have to make up everything, then it should be Eileen making it up, or Eileen making it up. And I think the fact that she was kind of um, as a young girl was always taken with these very strong, femme fatale characters in these black yeah. and white Home movies, you know, from Barbara Stanwyck and Gardner to, you know, on and on and on, you know, it's just, it's kind of powerful um, women in movies. And I thought, well, maybe she tells the story Thinking of herself as one of those characters that makes it kind of more interesting so that's why the that's why it's fooled in the way it is and the, as the movie goes on it becomes more of a of a fantasy
0: yeah and uh, there's even a point where her documentary her documentary uh the filmmaker make you know interviewing right her. the guy
1: that's playing the guy who's sent to the prison to interview her
0: right yeah it's like is like how, he, he 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 even lividly goes like like how much of this is really true, and yeah, <laughs> and yep. something along 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 those lines, and
1: okay, kind of humoring her because he wants to, you know, this is her supposedly her final interview, and it's a little very loosely based um, on a guy that did interview her shortly before her death, uh, that, you know, a famous documentary. He, uh, you know, he did go to the prison and did it, but you know, in this in this incarnation of it, it's it's it's, it's a it's a it's a vehicle. And it's a method to try to get the story out of in, in this movie. Like if Eileen Hornos, very damaged, emotionally damaged human I being, obviously, um, were to tell somebody part of her story, and by the way, we have to remember too, she by the time even before she died, people were making look and movie deals using her name. Yeah, and knowing that she was going to be dead, no sentence to death. They were already people in her orbit trying to profit off of that. And so I thought part of her rage was that people were making up stories about her. So she's kind of like, well, fuck you, I'm gonna make up my story. Want to listen to this. And so that's kind of what the movie is. So if she were to tell that in that state of mind that she's in at the end of her life, how would she like Maybe how would she have that That's kind of what the movie is. That's yeah. the sort of jumping off where
0: yeah. basically her getting the last laugh of saying, you know, hey yes. this could all be true, but you would never know because you never really heard. You know, exactly.
1: Right? It's, 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 yeah, it's Eileen, you know, giving the finger to the system. You know, yeah. And, and to those who might exploit her. Um, and, you know, and I think the irony is maybe it's exploitative to tell a story about her at all. But I thought, you know, this is a real interesting chapter in this woman's life. And, and what, I, what interested me most was, it was like a fork in the road of her life. Yeah. Here she was this very young, damaged girl, but here she was given an opportunity to change all of it by finding this man who very much I believe was in love with her and offered her a life that she probably never and probably that most people wouldn't would never get that opportunity. If here it was. And what did she do? She kind of resorted to her natural state of mind. You know, yeah. It's you know, it's like that old saying, like hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And that's kind of what it was, was that she was already so damaged that she couldn't kind of stop herself from hurting even a man who had her best interests at heart, allegedly. You know, there was no report that he did anything untoward or violent toward her. In fact, she directed all the violence toward him. So I think that the seeds of her insanity were already dead.
0: now. Uh, so, yeah. yeah uh- no, I, I heard you. I was just trying to think of my next yeah, question. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. Uh, because of my next question was about uh what you just said before, which was her the movies that they were making about it. And Monster was a brilliant movie. And mm-hmm. like when you were making this movie, is like and you mentioned this before, is like uh like what else is there to tell. So when you were making yeah. movies, like how were you trying to make this movie not similar to you know monster where it's like they kind of play up the whole uh the the serial killing nature of the her killing men and stuff like that too and there there is other media where aline is in this you know uh uh there's season i think i think it's season five of american horror story and yes right yeah long, she kind of visits the hotel I believe. Yeah, yeah long story yeah. short about that you know she's a ghost Ooh. and she happens to know that the guy who owns the building again long story short right right and they kind of play up more along the lines of and lily ray is a fantastic actress lily the ray, yeah, right they, they she also
1: played I mean, yes you're right yeah
0: and they kind of do play up the, the whole notion of the, the monster influence. And when I was watching mm-hmm. it, I wasn't really seeing, like, like, there was an influence of it, but it was more along the lines of what I just said before, where it's, I mean, what you and I were saying before is where she's telling her own story. So it's just kind of like elaborating on that. But, yeah,
1: she's building it
0: with, you know, it's,
1: it's like the game of telephone that just keeps growing and growing <laughs> with each, you know, it's it's but, like she's stringing, she's stringing this guy along,
0: obviously. But when you were making the film, it's like, did you, yeah. like, what was the conversation you had with, with uh, Peyton to, to say, mm-hmm. okay, don't make it like Shari Theron, just make Arlene your own type of character? Because she is a very proactive uh, character in the movie, but yeah. at the same time, the older Arlene is kind of like really, like what you just said before, like telling the thing along. And I'm just like, uh, yeah, but like, like, what was the conversations you had where it's like, uh, don't try and make it like this. Just keep it uh-huh. like. There we go. Like, don't try and make it like this.
1: Well, it's just what you said. It's exactly the conversations you had. Just said it. Uh, it's don't don't try to emulate another actor's performance, whether it's Charlize or or, or you know, anybody else who's tackled this role. Um, just make it who interpret that, that your way. Um, you know, don't try to put on a whole song and dance with this. You know, I mean, I think that. Hayden's toughness certainly comes through in the movie, but also that she's this kind of sad person. Like yeah, something really at, at her heart that's gone terribly long in her life, and she's a victim from the, almost the day she was born. And I think that she brought that. Um, she wasn't trying to kind of act like anyone else. She's just knowing that the movie was kind of she was the she was the fantasy Eileen. Yeah, uh, she saw herself as we much prettier than she actually was back in those days. Maybe she saw herself as smarter. She wanted to portray herself in this. Again, it's it's, it's the it's the real Eileen, if you will, telling a, a fancified, fanciful version of her own and what those things, those events might have been like and like that history books don't tell us.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, speaking of history, well, history books, uh, I should Talk about the the previous two films that are sort of like the same sort of painting pieces. Where uh, one is about the haunt, uh, one the haunting of Sharon Tate, and the mm-hmm. other the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I only heard about both of them because of its controversy of or mm-hmm. of, of the quote unquote exploitation of, <laughs> of, of the quote unquote exploitation of everything, yeah. and if. if if that was exploitation, I mean, honestly, if that was exploitation, then half of the movies on Lifetime would be essentially exploitation. Right? Yeah. I mean, again, so, it, was,
1: it was it was it was an easy target. Easy, easy. And I, I look back on it and I
0: just think, wow,
1: um, you know, there, I have a long list of movies that you, when to call them exploitation, go ahead. Um, and I yeah. guess Titanic was exploitative because you know, fifteen hundred people drowned in the Titanic. I guess that was exploitation.
0: Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of like weird how people. Uh, I decide, you know, and, and I think like the culture two, is in a.
1: We're in a place where everything's quote problematic. Yeah, everything is a problem. Everything is offensive. But all of this stuff, all of these reactions, are a choice. They're yeah. reactions of people who kind of maybe don't want to deal with their own trauma. Don't want to look at history for what it what it was, or maybe what it could have been. Like in the in the case of haunting of Sharon Tate and the. Um, and American want Women have some interesting parallels. They're both fantasies. Um, yeah. <clears throat> neither are meant to be taken literally. Neither are meant to be told, telling the audience this is the way it really happened. But yet, they want <clears throat> to, the critics, if you will, um, and the haters, they want to jump on them because that's not how it happened. Well, it's like, well, that's not supposed to be the way it happened. This is a fantasy told through a different lens. It's either the lens of, a distorted lens of an older Eileen facing her own death. Um, the crimes that she committed, or in the case of The Haunting of Mission, they're all earthbound spirits who are trying to work out for themselves how the hell they ended up here. And that's yeah. what the movie's about. Uh, but no, I, I, for yeah. those people who want to say, that's not what happened, to defend these movies, and I, I will, but I won't, because I'm kind of like, if you want to get that hung up on things, I can give you about 150 examples of things you might want to get angry about as well.
0: Yeah. Now, I bring up the uh, the, the, the conversation. I bring up the controversy. And mm-hmm. when, when you're releasing a movie and there's a little bit of a controversy behind it, does that make people want to go see the movie more? Or does that hurt the revenue of the box office? Or is it a mixture of both bags?
1: Well, it's certainly, it's funny. People have reported that, that they, they killed the box office. and But there was no box office. I mean, these movies were never theatrical films. Oh, okay. So, you know, not, never intended for that. Um, but, um you know, the movies were all successful. You know, and, and, I, and I don't know if it's because of the haters. I mean, maybe we should thank them. <laughs> I didn't make a lot of money. Um, what people also fail to point out is that, you know, my directing, fee, um, certainly on the first couple of movies, went to victims' charities. Um, so for anybody that ex- accuses me of exploitation or lining my pockets, well, go fuck yourself um, <laughs> so yeah um, I, it's just funny how people think they know who, you are. they know what your your mo- motives are they want to judge you as a human being and I'm just over it, I'm too old for it I don't have time for it um, if people want to live in that bubble of judgment, hatred and misunderstanding then that's a uh-
0: but yeah, th- there is something that I, I did uh, enjoy or saw was interesting was that in both of those movies, the like the villain, uh, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Saren Tate, the villain of Charles Manson and the villain mm-hmm. of OJ Simpson, they kind of kept in the shadows, just like that. Like right. especially with Manson, where it's like you don't see him like mm-hmm. ever. like you, you see him like through the shadows, he, or he's like. Out of frame or out of focus, but with OJ, uh, you know, OJ, you know, shows up like an hour into the movie. It was like, oh, it's you know, a movie yeah, about. There he is. Yeah, like, right? like when you were like when you were writing that, did you have that uh, in mind? That okay, these aren't movies about. But bo- this isn't a movie about OJ. This is not about a movie about.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. No. Fans. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't trying to make a biopic about Simpson. You know, or or, you know, any of these people. It's not a biopic, this isn't a documentary. It's not what these movies are. These movies are interesting kind of what ifs. Yeah. Like, you know, what if Nicole, because there was the story that Nicole Brown had met this man as kind of like a handyman. Um, This guy named Glenn Rogers, who was later arrested as being this notorious serial killer, the bedroom killer, the the cross country killer. and then you know if she had, what would that maybe have been? Um, you know, I remember that, like somebody else like went off on the fact that there's a whole scene where she's like being dragged across the ceiling and <laughs> you know, it's yeah, kind was... of like a nightmare on Elm Street thing. Yeah, yeah and was... it's, it's like let me let me let me tell you what it is. It's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a nightmare. Um kind of, um, kind yes.
0: of uh, explicit because one like after the after everything you just it kind of like pans over to her kind of like still sleeping in the tub so it was like oh so you're having a nightmare well,
1: oh. and i think what it was was you know and, and again it, that wasn't a script that i wrote it came to me um, um but i i feel like that that scene and what it what it symbolizes was her growing uh, paranoia her fear of the, that she was in danger all the time and I think that's kind of what it spoke to. Again, like, I, I, I laugh at the literalists who think, she didn't get dragged across the ceiling? <laughs> no, it was just... Well, of course she didn't. Um, but, you know, there are those who get angry because they think that I'm trying to say that that happened. No, she had a nightmare. And in fact, I think Nicole did And some of her, um, some of the books that were written about her and some of the people that knew her had said that she was having these, like, very strong almost like, I hate to say, like, psychic premonitions. It wasn't that, but I think she just felt she wasn't safe. Like, she had got her, one of her best friends was dashing um, it, and she had said to Chris before, not long before she died that if anything happens to me, just take care of my kids. So, yeah. like, there was maybe almost, like, a sixth sense that something was going to happen. You know, I think she always felt in danger of a threat of life from a And who, you know, is guilty of sin. I mean, the movie never says he's not guilty. Yeah. It just says, what if there was somebody else who maybe tried to get her? if you look at that scene, and I hate looking at that scene, Um, it's something that I kind of fought against. It was something that the producers kind of insisted. I didn't want to shoot a murder scene. I want to it very much in the the minds of the audience of Mm. what might have happened. Um, But the compromise was we don't show the face. And I almost felt like, well, that's kind of a disservice because we all know who did it. but I think for the purposes of the movie and what the producers felt, um, they needed to have that. So um, sort of had to go along with what they wanted. But I did like that. Um, and I will say that I think what's interesting about it, though, is it leaves the question of, of how did that all play out that night. And the ones that I just feel horrible for are those kids. You know, and I do. I wonder how they're doing today. Um, yeah. I can't imagine going through life knowing dad murdered your mom i I just don't know what that would be like so it's just that part gives me pause and makes me really um you know bow my head and really reflect on it and and it it makes me very sad
0: yeah it it does really make you sad because you know these were real people and these were real murders and Um, well and it was that
1: that was really the reason why i wanted to do something for charity you know when movie came out because i knew people would be all up in arms and of course they were they're like do you know what people are saying and i'm like well People are gonna say what they want to say, but I knew where my heart was. I know where it is. I know what kind of person I am. And um, and I think when you bring up questions, people get uncomfortable, they don't
0: like it. Uh, but yeah, uh, now I grew up in the 90s, so I, I really don't remember. I mean, I really remember the OJ trial, but I don't really remember the impact that it had. When you were making this film, did, like were you pulling like, bits and pieces of the stuff that you like really, really recall back in the 90s but I figured this would be like like yeah this like this was an event that you uh well, it was really in my hit. own
1: backyard I you know I, I I was in living in Los Angeles when it happened I mean that was a troublesome year in 1994 uh, 93-94 you know we had um the Robbie King incident you know which was the very first time um, to any great degree that the that the police were caught, you know, terrorizing and beating a poor, you know, a man who had just basically pulled over for a traffic stop. Um, you know, that became a huge controversy. We had a giant earthquake. We had floods. We had, um, you know, you name it. Yeah. And then the and then the OJ thing. Just everything was happening in a kind of cataclysmic way. It felt like around that time. Um, but I will tell you this, this is kind of strange trivia, but I remember specifically I was writing the screenplay for Halloween 6 when that Bronco chase went on. No, really? I remember I, I, had to, I stopped writing and looked up at the TV, and there was O.J. Simpson and his white Bronco racing down the 405 during rush hour on, I think it was a Friday night, um, being chased by, you know, a phalanx of, of Los Angeles Police Department.
0: Yeah, like the of the fire department.
1: It was a circus was in, like you couldn't believe this was happening and you have to remember too i grew up I'm older than you oj was a national hero you know? oh yeah it was to us kids in the 70s like uh you know all of these you know like he, he was just he was the football player we all loved and he and he kind of did transcend race nobody looked at him like the black guy oj it was just everybody he was an american past on hero you know that everybody looked up to he was the guy in the funny commercials about the Hertz rent a car. And he'd run through the airport, and that was funny. You know, as kids, we all looked up to him. And he was acting. You know, he was in the Naked Gun movies and making this very funny. He was in the Towering Inferno much earlier. You know, So he was a really um, accepted and revered part of the creative community and sports community, yeah. obviously. Um, but so, so the shock of that. See that there is this hero, this national hero, like basically running for his life, with a gun in his mouth. Days after his ex-wife had been and her friend had been stabbed to death. I mean, horrible. It was just a circus. It was horrible. And yeah, so that's that's my memory of it. And of course, you know, yeah, you want them. You're going to retell that story. And it, it's just a sensitive one. And I, I if, if there's one that I maybe regret, it might be that one, one just because it's it just feels. Yeah, good. It, it is. A but. Some, I just, I just don't, you know, and I, and, and some of it is because I have creative differences with involved, and some of it was the script I don't feel like was was baked enough. Um, but I also feel like we, there's just one. That's just one that I feel like we could have done better. Uh,
0: yeah. But, um,
1: but anyway, yeah. But is... but again, what I what I don't regret is that we told the story and that hopefully that some of the money that went to charities helps people who need help. And but, so for those reasons, I'm like.
0: Okay. Now, this is a this might be a weird, weird question, but when you did finish the film, did you feel like a sense of cathartic, like cathartic, like like cathartis, uh, cathartic? A catharsis. Yeah, catharsis. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, I, I don't know if I felt
1: ca- cathartic about it. I just, I kind of felt like, oh, this is, this is, this is going to rile people up. You know, I think there's, you know, I knew going in, you know, because everybody's like immediately, I knew there's going to be that, um, but I, I you know what? I, I guess I I didn't quite, you know, anticipate was kind of their reaction of, of I don't know. I guess it's all the same. It's, a, it's a, it was just a very negative knee jerk reaction to the movie, and I didn't I didn't not understand it. The Haunting of Sharon Tate, I didn't understand it because I knew that that movie was very much about. Um, victims rising up, yeah, and and claiming, you know, their justice for themselves, yeah, um, and you know, even that didn't. So I thought to myself, well, that's not. This is not going to go over well. But, but, um, but I was interested in you know, Nicole as a mother, you know, and yeah. what kind of person she was. And I, I, hopefully, there's moments in that movie where we show the tenderness she had and the love she had for her children and her friends, and that she was a very vulnerable woman. Not a great situation. Um, so hopefully that stuff comes through in the movie. And I thought Mina was sensitive to it. Miss Avari played her. That's a dangerous role for any, any actress. She, she took it on. And she, you know, she and I thought she was brave and I think she did a good job. I, I just I think it's just a tough one. And I think there's certain topics like that that just don't sit well with people. And I and I get it. I do get it. Yeah. I, and I
0: think it's also what word- you went back to before or what we touched upon before which is essentially that cult of celebrityism where it's like when there's a famous person or famous you know a a thing yeah when a famous person commits a shocking crime it it shocks people to the core and uh and it's something that you said before where it's like you don't want to read it in the history books of like the true true facts and everything and yeah and with this movie, is like, you do get the sensation of, of you're not really sure what happens in the end, but you all lean towards of, okay, yeah, he did it, or, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah but... Yeah, I mean, I think the
1: thing with the Glenn Rogers, I think that's true people. I think they didn't like that they we were intimating that somebody else could have been involved. Listen, I didn't say he killed her, or he didn't. I think, and I don't think the movie's saying that. I think it's just saying there were people in and around Nicole's life in her, her orbit that may not have been the best people you know, There are many stories and accounts of, you know, that Nicole was heavily involved in drugs at a period of her life. I don't know if it was that period, but it was a period that she was. You know, there was this, this restaurant that she frequented, you know, was apparently known for kind of being a drug, kind of running, you know, it's long gone it as a uh, cafe. In Brentwood, in a very expensive neighborhood, um, but it was kind of catering to the drug habits of the, the rich and famous. Um, you know, it was almost like a front for that, but that's the allegation. I don't know if that's true. Um, and I think one of the waiters there was later told sort of that this was after the Nicole and John yeah. tragedy. Um, so yeah, I just I, I just feel for the families, I feel for the kids, I, I just, the whole thing is just so unsavory and awful. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe in retrospect, putting that out there in any way shape or form isn't a good thing. But, you know, I also think we didn't make, we didn't try to make it into like, oh, Nicole was this terrible woman, terrible mother, insensitive, you know, she was just a human being. You know, she made oh, yeah. mistakes, she had, she had affairs, she, you know, she did, she did things that you know maybe she wasn't proud of, but she still. Looking... She didn't. Neither she nor Ron Goldman deserve, Of course, didn't deserve what happened. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Yes. And
0: man. Of, of course, you know. I'm sorry if I brought it up, but I just needed to talk about the controversy again.
1: Of course, you know yeah. I, I get it, and you know it's just something I feel like. Maybe yeah, that's you gonna, just need to bring it off. To part, your no, guests. no pun intended. That's that one's going to haunt me for a while. <laughs> you know, and I feel like that's part of the reason I. I've, you know, I kind of made a conscious decision to kind of pull away from these kinds of stories. I mean, I've done a few of them. You know, I'm not I'm not angry that I did them, but I think in retrospect, you know, I I would rather move forward into things that I think make people happier. Um, I don't I don't want to spend the rest of my life with this legacy of like just drumming up terrible incidents from you know dark pieces of history. I mean, it's it, you know what I've done is what I've done, but at the same time, I feel like it's it's, it's a good time for me to. Put a, a lid on that and and into other things
0: yeah so you finally got to do a, a light light-hearted, lighthearted family comedy lighthearted
1: time. yes an animated film sure. <laughs>
0: yes but uh, and, uh or go back to documentary or go back to documentaries and and i know mm-hmm. yeah almost, I've, got,
1: I've got a couple of those in the works and you know and i'll never you know give up my love of horror genre no but you
0: know, but the, the, you know it, doing like movies like this back almost like back to back to back it, it does like where you go out and you're kind of like and it just goes you know I, I feel like I made my mark on some of these movies and and I think you had made your mark with especially with these movies and I, I do think that like the 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 story is there is like it, you definitely if you watch these movies like the story is there and you just need to like like Watch it with an open mind and stuff like that too, and yeah. see that you know these are movies where it's like it's you know these are fiction mo- you know these are based right. on, you know still fiction since this right. is, it is a movie you know it's a movie
1: it's fiction based on fact, um, whatever you want to call it um, but it's you know the thing that you know obviously there's the, there's that group of people that want to you know that these were real people's lives well sure you know I mean. They, Name a movie based on a true story that wasn't about someone. They all were. Um, I don't know anybody who's ever made a movie where there's, you know, they want to make a movie that that targets victims and makes them out to be terrible human beings. <laughs> yeah. You know, for those people who say that, I'm like, get your head checked. That's not. Watch the movie again and watch it, you know, outside of your sphere of anger that you've created for yourself. That's not what I made at all. Never. I would never make something like that. Yeah. Who would? I mean, who. We'd make a movie saying that we're that Sharon Tate and her friends deserve what they got but there are those critics who've said that that's what I do uh yeah um it's absolutely that stuff makes me think of there's something really intrinsically wrong with the people writing those kinds of reviews like there's something wrong with them like and I wouldn't want to be in a room alone with them I think that they're just yeah. that's what they see
0: uh but yeah uh, and uh to bounce back off of uh, off of this, and I do want to bring up uh, a short documentary or uh, television documentary that you did in re- in honor of, mm-hmm. of its release that's coming. Well, as of right now I'm recording this, it's almost out in theaters. Well, it's right before it's the theater. Actually, it should be already be out because it's Thursday. And they do Thursday releases and stuff like that too. But Scream, okay. Scream, aka Scream Five, those who are keeping count. Uh, yep. being released in theaters but you also did a tv documentary for a&e called screen the inside story great right. talk about a little bit about not only the production for that but also creating a, um, a uh, short documentary thing for the a&e channel especially for oh. screen yeah
1: yeah um this i'm going on a way back machine here a little bit This <laughs> <It's laughs> just a long time ago I think it was around twenty. When when did Scream Four come out? Was twenty eleven? Yeah, twenty eleven. Um, eleven years. So yeah. we had, I
0: know.
1: I can't believe it, man. It's just, I, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm. It's like a, It's like an episode of like This Is Your Life at this point. Uh, <laughs> I can't, can't believe it's You know,
0: bring this up. Like, hey. You're no, a- no, yeah, I think it's great.
1: Um, I, I'm honored that you remembered it. Um, so we had done myself and, and my kind of creative posse had done a, a documentary that was really well-received called Never Sleep Again, Elm Street. Like, like the very first, I think, fan-inspired documentary to chronicle the making of you know the beloved horror franchise that is around Elm Street. And we did that on our own. And I always said by the fans and for the fans, we did it as a labor of love. There was no financial backing behind it. We just threw everything that we had on the screen. And we're lucky to get so many people who were involved with the movies to, to come and support the cause, um, so it was on the success of that documentary on uh, Never See Again that we um, we had actually sold the television rights to Annie for, for that show, oh, and really? this uh, yeah. So the way that the screen show came about was because of that. The, the people who had bought the Elm Street uh, legacy for Annie said, "Would you like to do something else?" And you know, Scream Four was being talked about. It wasn't. I don't think it was yet in production. Maybe had just wrapped. But it was still early, yeah. And um, and I said, well, what if we did something on, on screen? And you know, there is a new movie that's going to be coming out within the year. Should really jump on that. And the people at A and agreed. And so suddenly we were like a go project because there was a limited time in which to get this done. They wanted to release actually premiere the show like the, the week before Scream Four opened. Which just, you know, it was all timing. Um, but that's where that started. And thankfully, you know. Um, Brilliant and wonderful, late Wes Craven, who had you know been so generous with us when we did the Elm Street documentary, he was more than happy to participate in our Scream documentary. And I was like, Wes, we have money this time, <laughs> 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 so <laughs> we don't have to hang a green screen in the middle of your office. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can we, of we have our own little you know studio, which is what we did. I'm not kidding. We like hung a green screen in his corner in the corner of his office and. Rito uh, Velasco, who <laughs> did everything, he wore all these hats on these shows. He like held the boom mic like, for three hours above Wes's head. I don't know if he's ever recovered from that. But um, um, so uh, yeah, so that's how that started. And um, and thankfully, we had the blessing of uh, Wes and um, at the time Miramax, the that studio that you know released the movies and. You know we got we got a lot of people. the the the, the thing with um, Inside Story, which was an ongoing series that Bio Channel had been doing, they yeah. really wanted to focus this the, on the original. So ours didn't so much like get into the sequels of Scream at that time. It touched on them at the end as kind of like yeah, there was a Scream two, three, and boy, there's going to be a four. Um, but the most of the the show, the hour and a half, I think, was really was dedicated to them. The, the concept, the making, and the release of the first spring. So that's what that was all about. Yeah, and it was great. You know, listen, we got to meet so many of the people involved. Um, and it was just always a thrill. You know, we created this really set that looked kind of like the Woodsboro School. And um, it was just fun, you know, to have everybody from the production designer to obviously the awesome cast to, you know, obviously, the, it goes without saying that having Wes in, in the room at any time was always just, Awesome, and there's yeah. no other word. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It was just so so wonderful. It was so nice, you know. he just, it doesn't, it didn't. It, the funniest thing is that he earned this reputation as like the king of horror when he was just like the nicest man and couldn't have been sweeter, kinder, more generous to all of us. And uh, it was, it was an honor. I get a little teary thinking about it. He was, was so kind to all of us. And
0: now, and uh, he was, all, and he had. And he will always be missed because he is like uh, one of the great all time. Oh my movie, god! Like yeah. all time creators in horror movies, and, and and it's just amazing to know there's like oh he didn't start out as a horror movie you know director. He was just like in his own words, just like this kid coming out of like a, a Christian college. Oh yeah, no, he came from a really
1: devout you know I want to say background, something like that. But it was you know it was and I don't think he said he even had a TV. He saw a TV and. Um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, I, I think because I think a lot of people who grew up in repression find outlets for that. I think I did too. I think, I think part of my story was I was raised in a very Catholic household and, and you know, you, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I think a lot of religion is fear-based, you know, and think that people, the more religious and maybe more devout, more extremist type of religious use fear to control. Yeah. Like their I children, have- their, their, their congregation, their, their parish, you know, and, I, and I, I, you know, listen, I don't want to get into that conversation, however, um, I think <laughs> that for people who have go- who've gone through these experiences and come through the other side, I think that you're always left with a mark, and I think that we're always the sum total of our hearts, you know, of our history, and I yeah. think that Wes is, in a way, working out some of that stuff. Oh, yeah
0: and uh you know i grew up catholic and uh i'm i'm mm-hmm. what we call a, a a lapsed catholic you know yeah me too yeah i, I was
1: I, like i'm, I'm still like
0: I'm, like I'm still catholic by faith but you know if there's ever a moment where i go okay i, I gotta go to church church for a couple of seconds to uh all mm-hmm. my sins well, i i, door, I feel right. you man i do i i grew
1: up in the catholic church myself unfortunately i had some you know in particular, a very close friend of mine growing up was abused by one of the priests at our church. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into in the details, but um, you know, there's just there's a darkness to some of oh, that, yeah. and, and I think that uh, that the survivors of abuse and trauma have to find a way to coexist in the world in a way that can face the day.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, and sometimes those nightmares that we have, like the Freddy Kruegers, are a manifestation of childhood trauma oh
0: yeah and i think that is it's probably why so many people relate
1: to these characters when i think about it too you know i think that the freddies the michael myers i think they all kind of represent that shadow of our past
0: And collectively
1: we all experience trauma in our lives we do and i think it's why so many people get upset when when you confront them with it it's something like an abusive or a Manson, you know, not to circle back to these other things that make people. I think sometimes when you put a fake front on it, like a Freddie or a Michael, that's okay. Yeah. But when you start to kind of peel the layers back and show them real shit, that's when people go like, "Oh no, no that's I, I, I don't want to look at that. That makes me uncomfortable because there's something about it that triggers trauma in there.
0: And I believe on that note is a great way to end this episode. Uh, uh, in a way, or in a uh, message, or in a tone, really, a lot of the, the four films that we spoke of really does spoke of not only victims fighting back, but also just, like, unleashing this trauma of this... it's Like, yeah, unleashing this trauma that we both, we all have in the society. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's sort of like... It, it's basically like going to therapy, where it's just like, you know... In therapy... Your therapist and yourself do you talk about your trauma, and it's basically about healing from your trauma. and Sometimes mm-hmm. people want to be healed from the trauma, but there are people who don't want to be healed from the trauma. And whenever the band aid is ripped open, it's like they have to put the yeah. band aid back on, and you know, and right, they act out, you it. know, and
1: they scream really loud, <laughs> they
0: get yeah. real angry, they get real, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I, I get it. I you know I, we've
1: all lived through something traumatic, we've all had. You know, I think we all know of victims. You know, We're all, in a sense, touched by the violence and stuff. all touched by indifference that people have, toward you know, acts of terror and horror. You know, children going to school through, you know, metal detectors and having drills of what to do if somebody comes in and shoots up the school. Yeah. These are horrors that we all live with, with the knowledge of, and yet we kind of still just... You know, shrug our shoulders to some of it. Yet, you know, I, I know, I know somebody who's well known in the horror industry whose uh, child was shot in a shooting um, a couple years ago, oh. and I don't think that they will ever get over it. I don't think we'll ever get over it. And so, I, I think that we, as a, as a, as a society, as a, as a collective, that we're all kind of licking those wounds and finding ways, like you said, to put bandage. Just so that we can get up and get out of bed. There are days when I'm sure lots of us—I've had those days, Um, especially during this uh, pandemic and the lockdown and the uncertainty and the everything changes from minute to minute. Now it's this, and now it's the other, and nobody knows what to believe, and everybody's pointing fingers at the other person. It's so crazy, and I think we're all just trying to figure out how to navigate our lives. So I think that maybe horror and maybe movies that point a finger at some of these. Or is real life? I think they make people either feel very uncomfortable or they give them, they empower them to face their own. So it's it's, it's an either or situation, but I think there's a place for all of it. I just think that people have to decide how they want to read.
0: Yeah. And on that note, uh, yeah, uh, th- thank you, Daniel, for being another great guest and speaking about. Oh, no, thanks. Please- thanks yeah uh, yeah
1: no thanks for having me again it's always nice to connect with you i hope
0: you're doing well
1: and staying oh safe i am uh all those uh, things yeah.
0: good yeah i have been... <laughs> like, nice to keep it
1: that way stay stay that way you know stay safe and, you know good to the people around you and that's uh, all we can ask right
0: yeah and on that note uh yeah please take care of one please please just stay safe and be well and thanks man you.
1: all right we'll, we'll be in touch